Well, good morning, Word of Grace. That's Steve and Jenny Bono, and I just, I love those guys. In fact, it's fun knowing right now that he's sitting at the director's chair, switching the cameras. He's like, stop talking about me. I promise that's what's happening in his head right now. Uh, but so thankful for people like Steve and Jenny and so many of you who have been making an eternal impact by being willing to say yes to what the Lord was giving you opportunity to do and what the Lord was putting on your heart to do. And uh, the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about missional moments. We just concluded the book of Philippians, which I personally loved walking through. I hope it blessed you as well. But we saw in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul, who was living on God's mission and, and not the most ideal circumstances, and then also was calling the church in Philippi to live missionally. And really, us 2,000 years later in Sheboygan Falls, Wisconsin on this day, God is calling us to the same thing, to be missional in this world with what he has given us. Before we get too deep into scripture, a little story. You know, this last week, uh, well, before I talk about what happened this last week, uh, over the last few weeks, a month or so, or even more, uh, my wife and I have been trying to be more intentional, making better decisions in two areas of our lives. Uh, one being uh, what we consume in our bodies, what we eat and drink and what we put inside of our bodies, and then also what we do with our money. And so because of that, we've been reevaluating and analyzing and discussing and making tough decisions regarding what are we going to do with a plan for our diet and what we eat so that we can live healthy and be effective with what God's given us. And then also, uh, what do we want to do with our money so that we can glorify God with the way that we live, we can make wise decisions. And these types of thought processes really come from looking down the road, right? Because if you're not looking down the road and you're looking at the cake, well, you're going to eat the cake. But if you're looking down the road and thinking about what happens from the cake, and not just one time eating cake, but a lifestyle of daily cake or whatever it might be for you. Whatever it could be that if you make the habits and life decisions that are perpetually that, when you look down the road, you go, if I keep doing this and making these types of decisions, there's going to come a day in my life where the, ben or the circumstances are not what I would want. And so because of what's down the road, I'm going to make better decisions today. Same thing with our finances, that if we go, man, I'm 36 years old, I've got this much time left of working and, and making money and things like that, then what do I want to do with my money knowing that there's coming a day where I will no longer be working and what do I want to do today for that day? So we've been making these decisions on diet and on budget, putting boundaries and, and uh, being intentional with those things. And then on Friday, we went to Costco. <laughs> you laughed rightly because when you're trying to consider diet and budget, Costco is a different world. If you go to Costco without considering diet and budget, man, you know, yes, absolutely, we need five gallons of ketchup. Why wouldn't we buy? And yeah, of course, we want three large cans of beefarino. A couple of you will get that, maybe not most of you. And so we need all these massive quantities of everything. Yeah, why not? We'll save money by buying a bunch. And then you get to the checkout and you keep hearing them scanning items. They're still scanning. 
I keep hearing that beep. I don't remember putting that many barcodes into the shopping cart. And then you look at the receipt and you go, whoa. But when you go into Costco with a budget and with a diet in mind, it's a little painful. It's a little more challenging. It's like, yes, I do want that tray of the baked mac and cheese that they make that's really delicious. But that's not good for my health budget that we have. We, we're doing Weight Watchers, and so we've got the points where we can use our phone to scan barcodes and find out how many points stuff's worth, and apparently points equals weight, whatever. And so <laughs> it's so much fun. And, and so we're scanning everything. I'm like, oh, this has got to be healthy right here. Ten points? I can't get that. That's not worth using my daily health budget towards and and then, oh, this, this looks good. Oh, and this is healthy, $35? Okay, maybe for that one item. And so when you go through Costco with your health in mind and with your budget in mind, thinking about what the outcome will be of that immediate decision you want to make, well, you make a lot of different decisions. And this Friday's visit to Costco was still a good time, but not nearly as fun as I used to have in Costco. I mean, even with my wife, I was like, I really want one of them big honking hot dogs right now on the sign. Not worth the points. Let's go in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to read a passage today that has the same heartbeat in it. That as we live in this life, making decisions today of how we want to live, what we want to do with our lives... We're going to make the best decisions, although they may be painful and may not be as much fun. Uh, in the moment, looking to a later day that will come helps us make better decisions with what we are doing with our day, with our life, with our time, with our money, with whatever God has given us. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. This is Jesus talking. And to give context, he was just talking about the kingdom of God. So he's continuing to talk about the kingdom of God. And Jesus said in verse 14, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. If you're a person who highlights or underlines in your Bible, that's a great sentence or statement to highlight and underline. And entrusted to them his property, the master's property he entrusted to the servants. Going on in verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Another great moment to stop and underline that, that each one was given according to their own ability. And this is not to imply that in the kingdom of God, some people are better than others. But it does communicate what we'll also see if we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that God does wire and gift all of us uniquely, that we are all uniquely wired by God, designed by God, and gifted by God. And therefore, when God looks at what he has given to us and expecting from us, he does it case by case. There is no copy-paste uh, scenario where God is expecting the exact same thing from everyone Unless you get to broader generalizations of like, yes, he expects all of us to pray. Yes, he expects all of us to be people of the word of God. Yes, he expects all of us to share our faith. But when it comes to how um, and the different ways that God would use us, the different 
places and the different times and the different relationships with which God would use us, then yeah, it's going to look different because God's wired all of us differently, put all of us in different places, given all of us different relationships, given all of us different uh, skills, talents, and gifts. So, uh, and, and one other thing I want to clarify really quick, this whole idea of talents, that he gave five talents to one servant, two talents to another servant, and then one talent to the third servant. Talent does not mean he made one good at juggling, one good at singing, and one good at running fast. The term talent is a monetary term in Bible days. It first showed up in the Old Testament, and a talent would equate about 75 pounds of money, coins. And so uh, I don't know if you guys have been in the gym to pick up 25-pound plates, but if you took three of those plates, that's a lot of money when you can't consider that much weight in coins. And a lot of people who are a lot smarter and a lot more educated than me did a lot of research and a lot of math to conclude that a talent today is probably like 600,000-ish dollars. That's the same way first service responded. Six, ooh, a hefty chunk of money. And so to the first servant giving five talents could have been three million-ish dollars. The second servant who he gave two talents would be about 1.2 million-ish dollars. The third servant, 600,000-ish dollars. When we consider the master gave these servants talents, that's what in this case it's saying. So continuing on, uh, verse 16, we'll pick up, he who had received five talents went at one, oh wait, yeah, I'm sorry, verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. The master went away. Verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The day of accountability, so to speak. He came and settled accounts. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents? Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of the master. Pause. We see these two. One was given five. One was given two. And one made ten or made five more talents to give back his master ten talents. We're talking about six million-ish dollars. And then the other, who had the two talents, 1.2-ish, came back and said, hey, I've doubled that as well, 2.4-ish million dollars. Now, the master didn't go, now, hang on, this guy got five talents more for me, and you only got 2.4, or you only doubled 1.2. There was not a comparison of you didn't get as much as this guy did. The master said the exact same thing because it wasn't according to what they gave back. It was according to what they did with what was given to them. 
That's that's how the account was given. Each person was counted faithful, dependent on what they did with what was given to them. This is one of the reasons, another one of many reasons, several reasons why comparing ourselves to others is dangerous and foolish. As it pertains in this scenario, talking about are we being fruitful in God's kingdom? Are we making a difference? Are we doing enough with what God has given us? When we look at other people, we're going to fall into one of two traps. It's either, oh man, look at how much so-and-so is doing for the kingdom of God. I could never do that with what I have and the gifts that I have and the money that I have or the time that I have. So I will never be able to. And you get discouraged or down on yourself. You, you, you fall down into these traps where if you flip that coin to the other side and you go, man, I am doing way more for Jesus than so-and-so, then you're getting into pride and self-righteousness. These are dangerous. This is why in this parable, Jesus is giving the example that both of these guys were called faithful when they did something with what was given to them. So stop looking at what everyone else is doing and just go, man, what has the master given me? What has God given me? What has he made me good at? What has he wired me to do? What has he resourcefully given me with time and with money? What are the things that God has given me? Because that's what my account will be against. In fact, for me, hit home with this. This passage a year ago is what really made me start wrestling with is God calling me to be a lead pastor. I've been serving our church for almost nine years in different capacities and have loved every minute of it. And last year I was in this passage and it really began to confront me when I began evaluating what has God made me good at? What has God wired me to do? What gifts and talents and callings has God given me? And then I'd think about being a lead pastor where I grew up in a lead pastor's home and I know how demanding and challenging and difficult it can be, how straining it can be on your family. I know uh, I was, I've been best friends with Derek for a long time, our former lead pastor. So I was close to him and very aware of the burdens that were on him as the lead pastor. And a long time, I was like, I don't want that. That's hard. That's, that's a lot. That's demanding. I'd rather do this. And then this passage began to confront me with, your account will be based on what I gave you. Your account is going to be based upon what the master gave you. Remember that sentence I asked you to highlight or underline. He entrusted to them his property. The master entrusted to the servants the master's property. The problem is we think our own, we are our own property. We think we belong to ourselves. We think that we're here in this world on our own agenda with our own goals and our own dreams, our own aspirations, our own hopes. And we forget we have been bought. If you are a child of God, if you are a Christian, you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. No longer your own. We're not our own anymore. This is the whole thing of Paul saying, uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, recognizing we're not here as ourselves on our own mission anymore. That when you've been brought into God's family, you are then on God's agenda and God's mission and God's purposes. And these servants, the two, these gave faithful accounts because they recognized the master gave them something to steward that was not theirs, And the master was going to come back. And on that day when the master comes back, 
I want to have done something good with what he gave me. And they did. And it says right away they went and began investing. Right away they went and began doing things to where when the master came back, they could say, Master, you gave me five. I've got five more. Here's 10 for you. You gave me two. I got two more. Here's four talents back for you. I did something with what you gave me. Notice that the servants' rewards were directly connected to their faithfulness in pursuing the master's interests with what the master gave them. Their rewards were directly connected to how faithful were they with pursuing the master's interests with what the master gave them. Your body, your brain, your very life, you did not give to yourself. It was a gracious gift from God. Your schedule, your time on this earth, your days that are numbered by God is given to you by God. The things that you're good at, the things that you are skilled in and talented at, you might have worked hard at those things, you might have developed them, you might have gotten education, but God gave you the brain and the body to even be able to develop and learn and acquire those skills and gift sets. So guess what? All of it is stuff that is the master's property. We as believers belong to Jesus Christ. We are not our own. And so in this life, we ought to be living and looking towards that day, knowing a master is going to call us to account for what we did with what he gave, for, gave to us. And like these first two servants, what do we want to hear? We long to hear. We live to hear. We make decisions right now, hoping that day to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. It's seeing that day coming that causes us to live wise today. There was another, verse 20, or where was I, 21, 22, help me out here, 24, way ahead of me, okay, verse 24, thank you. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. He's like, I heard that you're a really tough, stern, strict boss, and I didn't want to lose what you gave me, so I buried it. But here, here you go. I've got all of it, all that you gave me. I've got it. It's yours, every bit of it, all the whole talent, everything you gave me. I've got it. It's yours. Verse 26, but the master answered, his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. If you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, will be, more will be given, and he, uh, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless, the worst, oh my goodness, worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a phrase that is repeated with refrain over and over in the book of Matthew. Also is mentioned a couple times in Luke talking about our eternal destiny. 
That is implying being eternally separated from God in punishment. This is someone who would have claimed to have been and thought of themselves to have been a servant of the master. A person who would have been fully aware that they were given things. But this person dictated their perceptions of this master to say, I knew this about you and I knew you were hard and you did this and this. And because I was afraid, I didn't want to lose what you gave me. I didn't do anything with it. Instead, I buried it, which was a common thing to do in ancient times with large sums of money that you wanted to save. You would bury it because they didn't have banks the way we have banks. They had bankers and different things, but it wasn't the same way. So it was very common for people to bury money and treasure in Bible days. I didn't want to lose it. And I didn't, so here's the good news. I've got what you gave me and I'm giving it back, every bit of it, every penny. But to his dismay, he did not hear the same thing that the other servants heard. He didn't hear, well done, good and faithful servant. He said, you wicked and slothful, lazy servant. If you thought those things about me, shouldn't you have at least done something, at least given it to the banker so that I could at least get my money back with interest? And I feel like this is the equivalent of someone who has received life in God, someone who's learned about Jesus and going, oh man, I'm going to use my life now. I, I don't want to lose this. I'm like, going to make sure that I'm good going to make sure that I stay safe and that I'm all right so that hopefully on that day I won't have done bad things enough and I'll be good enough to where when I give an account to the master I won't have squandered what he gave me and that fear motivated him see the faithful servants were rewarded by the master's benevolence by his generosity this servant fearing the master's harshness but unaware of his benevolence experiences the very wrath that he feared. This, says Jesus, is what will happen to those who claim to be his followers but do not invest their lives in the work of the kingdom. That's the point of what Jesus is making here. We, very often, we want to, we got, we got in, we got Jesus, all right, I'm good. Now I'm gonna go about living my life Pursuing my interests, my dreams, my goals, my aspirations, my hopes. And hopefully I can stay faithful until that day, doing my thing for Jesus. Doing my hopes and dreams and aspirations and goals with Jesus' blessing, hopefully, on them. And Jesus is pointing out here, if you don't do something with what I gave you, with the master's interests in mind... You're a slothful and wicked servant. Amen, Pastor Stephen. This is such a fun thing to hear. See, living in light of eternity motivates us to live on mission. Living in light of eternity motivates us to live on mission. When we think about that day, when we know a master, our Jesus Christ master, Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords is coming back and that every single one of us will stand before him. What is it that makes us here well done or wicked and lazy or in other places where Jesus said, depart from me, I don't know you. Are we going to do something with what the master 
gave us. We know the master's returning and we know we're going to give an account for what we did with what he gave us. This is the exact same thing of, uh, I want to say like a year ago or so, Katie and I adjusted our investment portfolio with what we were contributing to what? I met with our financial advisor, said, I want to make some changes. You know what motivated that for me? I went, hmm, I'm 30, at last year I would have been 35. Hmm, I'm 35. I'm going to be working and accruing an income for this many years-ish, plus or minus. And if I want these things to look this way on that day, then there's things I need to change now. And I need to stop letting some of that money come into my hands and using it on things right now. And I need to start designating a little bit more of it over here and in these areas where it's going to gain interest and it's going to grow and all that kind of stuff because of a day that is coming down the road. I made changes today for what is coming that day. And when we live in light of eternity, knowing if we're here in this world, saved by the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ, having seen the infinite value and worth of Jesus, then we need to be here going, hey, let me tell you what I found. Hey, can you come and taste what I've tasted? Hey, let me tell you what Jesus did in my life in hopes that he would do it in their life and that they would taste and that they would come and see knowing that those are ways we can invest what the master gave us so that when the master comes to give account or to call to account, we hopefully will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. See, sometimes we also aren't too serious about this because we convince ourselves also, or maybe it's not that we convince ourselves, maybe we're just not mindful of that in this world as believers, we're here and wartime. And I don't know if there's another country as much as America that lives as if we're in peacetime, that we're in Mayberry, that we've got our white picket fences in our American dream that we're trying to pursue, that we're trying to make sure that we just do everything we can to keep up with the Joneses and achieve our goals. And none of that stuff is bad in and of itself. But when it's wartime, people live differently. If, if, it, if we went back and rewinded to, rewinded, rewound, to World War I, World War II, if we went far enough back to like Civil War, lifestyle looked a lot different. A lot different. People use their money differently during wartime. People use their time differently during wartime. People use their skills differently. People will go, man, I have been working in this career, but because of the mission, but because of what's going on around the world and this war, I want to use my skills differently in this time, in wartime. People would band together. Communities would do things. There was the, I, I, I'm going to mess up the term. You guys can help me. But there were the, the gardens that people did, uh, those wartime gardens, those community gardens. People were making decisions differently and living differently because it was wartime. And we forget that there is currently this very moment until Christ comes back, a war going on. A war for souls, not for kingdoms and not for domains of this world, not regarding money and economies and different people that want to live different places in this world and accomplish different political things. A spiritual war going on. And we are a part of that war. 
And we live differently when we start to see Joe and Susie, who we work with, not just as Joe and Susie, who we're just going through life with, but when we see them as two souls who will spend eternity somewhere. And God might have put me on mission in their life in hopes that we could win the war in their life to to rescue them from being prisoners of war and brought into the kingdom of light brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Where we're going, man, God, who are the people you've put in my life? And what are the relationships you've given me? What are the opportunities you've given me? What have you made me good at? God, give me boldness and courage to be on mission in hopes that I could be an ambassador for you, someone who's saying, be reconciled to God. This is why we're still here. This is why God still lets us be alive on this earth so that we could be on mission about the Father's business, about the Master's goals, His purposes, not our own. And if we're going to do this, the elementary, comical illustration of how much harder it is going through Costco when you're thinking long-term, and this life, when we're living in light of eternity means those conversations that we have at the water cooler aren't just about are the bucks going to win or not anymore. It might be, man, is the Lord leading me to get out of my comfort zone and put my neck out there and maybe be willing to say, hey, is there anything going on in your life that I could be praying about for you? That family member, that friend who you've built a long time relationship with, is God calling you to be missional on the war in that moment to go, hey, can I just share with you about what Jesus has done in my life? That's being missional. Instead of just going, well, let's talk about sports. Let's talk about weather. Let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about politics. What if we were available and sensitive and and, and willing to be used by God for missional moments in times like those where we could be the faithful servants who are going, man, someday I'm going to stand before the master and go, God, you gave me my life. You gave me my time, my money. You gave me these resources. And here's what I did with them. Here's what I did with what you gave me. Eager to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. If we went into 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we would hear Paul telling the church in Corinth about how Even though we live in this world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not weapons of this world. Talking about that wartime mentality, that we have spiritual weapons where we're praying that God would use us and praying that God would save people, praying that the mission of God would go forth and that he would use us in that mission. If we went to Ephesians chapter 6, we would read a passage where Paul's talking about the armor of God, this more warfare imagery and mentality that we need to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, so that we're ready for war. Or we could convince ourselves that we're in peacetime, where our priorities are our hobbies, our recreation, our vacation, our retirement, our things that are good and gracious gifts from God that ought to be put in their proper place for a soldier on mission. Amen? There are a lot of excuses we use to say no. There are a lot of ways that people say no. One of the excuses is like this unfaithful servant, I don't want to mess it up. 
What if, I, what if I mess it up? What if I don't do it right? What if I waste what God has given me? And it's as if we think this good and faithful God would put us on his mission and go, good luck. As if he hasn't filled us with his spirit to lead us and guide us and embolden us. As if he hasn't given us his word to equip us and be wielding that sword. God is not going to put us on mission and just say, figure it out. And so this fear of messing it up, I think God would rather us be willing to mess up than be like this guy who goes, I don't want to mess up and just bury it and just sit on it. Another way that people make excuses for saying no is, I'm not good at blank, fill in the blank. We saw this famously in one of the most famous Bible characters, our friend Moses in the book of Exodus. One day he's out with the sheep and he sees a burning bush and he's like, what in the world is going on? There's a bush that's on fire that's not being consumed. He goes to check it out. The bush starts talking to him. He realizes he's talking with God. And in this moment, God through this burning bush tells Moses, listen, I'm calling you to go back into Egypt. You're gonna go talk to Pharaoh. You're gonna tell him to let my people go. He's not gonna listen to you for a while, but I'm gonna use him to display my works and my wonders and my power so that all the world will know that I am God and not Pharaoh. And uh, I want you to do this. And Moses says to God, oh, well, well I, I'm not good with words. He makes an excuse to God saying, I'm not very good at talking. Like, I'm not, you're wanting me to go talk to the highest office in the land. I'm not good at talking. And when he says this to God, it says that God's anger was kindled towards Moses. Because God wasn't wanting Moses to go and do this according to Moses' ability. And God's not asking us to do what he's asking us to do according to our ability. God's not looking for us to be just right, perfect at whatever he's calling us to do. In fact, if you go through scripture, you see a bunch of people who are not qualified, not good enough, not capable, not righteous enough that God goes, that's the people I want to use. The people who when I use them, it will be clear that it's not them and that it's me and therefore I get the glory. See, we get in the way by saying, I can't or I'm not good enough or I'm not righteous enough, I'm a sinner. This is the same thing that the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, when he's in the vision of the throne room of God in the very holy of holies of God, where the cherubim are flying around and, and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah's there in his vision and he goes, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. Seeing God in his glory, he goes, I shouldn't be here, woe is me. I am a sinner, essentially, is what he's saying. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the angel comes down with the coal, touches his lips, cleanses and purifies him, atones for his sin. The passage says in Isaiah chapter 6, and then God calls Isaiah to God's mission. Another guy who was similar, Peter, the, the apostle Peter, as we know him, the disciple Peter, is out fishing, not catching anything. Jesus walks up, hey, cast your nets on the other side. And they catch a haul of fish when they hadn't caught anything that day. So much that the boat starts sinking. Peter recognizes, whoa, wait a minute. This dude just might be God. And he says, master, get away from me. For I am a sinner. And what does Jesus say to him? 
follow me, and I'm going to teach you to fish for men. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Notice these men who had conversion experiences, so to speak, where they see God for who he is, they recognize their sin, they repent of their sin, and God calls them to follow and be on his mission. It comes right after in these accounts. So the idea that I'm not good at X, Y, Z, or the fact that I have, uh, I'm a sinner, or I'm not good enough, or I've messed up too much. Think about the Apostle Paul, who we've been quoting a lot, and we read that letter from Philippians, a guy who was persecuting and killing Christians that Jesus confronts on the road to Damascus, knocks him off of his horse, causes him to go blind for a few days, opens his eyes, calls him into ministry, and this dude ends up writing a bunch of the New Testament and becoming the second most influential person for Christianity in history, only next to Jesus himself. Someone who was a sinner, wicked. So all of our excuses that we use uh, as to why these things we pile up and say, God couldn't use me, God couldn't do this with me, All those faithful people in scripture are going to line up and say, yeah, me too. I wasn't qualified. I wasn't good at whatever. God uses us because it gives glory to him. God could do it all on his own. God could appear to whomever he wanted to appear to. But he chooses to use us because he's glorified and using these broken vessels and showing how powerful, how good, and how gracious he is. Amen? See, God's not simply looking for your ability. He's looking for your availability. God's not only looking for your ability. He's looking for your availability. To the person who would say, I'm too old. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. That's God's ability, not that age limit. To the person who would say, I'm too young. Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but instead set the example for the believers in faith and in truth and love and, and so on. So these whole age dynamics. No, you, if you're here and breathing, you've got mission work to do. Well, I'm not a preacher, a teacher like Pastor Stephen or whomever. This is the whole point of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Well, Paul is using the illustration of the body to say the body of Christ has many members, many different parts And God places the members in the body as he sees fit. That he gives all of us gifts and talents and skills and abilities. That it's not, what are you good at? So I got to be good at that too. No, God gives all of us. And we don't want to be like the people on American Idol who are like, yeah, I can sing real good. See, to be loved, to be loved. So God used me to sing and lead worship like Gina. Listen, let's be honest. Let's, okay, it's comical. I get it. But let's be honest with ourselves about what has God truly made me good at? Those people on American Idol who are doing that is because they were wishing they were good at something that they're not really good at. And because of that, they put themselves out in front of the whole world as fools. And we've got to go, God, what have you made me good at? What have you gifted me with? What have you skilled me with? What have you given me? What are the resources of time and money and relationships that you've given me? What are all of this together to create a conglomerate of what I can do with what you've given me? Not that I'm the preacher like Pastor Stephen or leading worship like Pastor Gino and Andrea. What has God made me good at? Because you're good at things that I'm terrible at. And I'm good at things that you're terrible at. That's why he goes on in 1 Corinthians 12 to say, the hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. We all need each other because we all together are the body of Christ with Jesus Christ as the head. God is looking for our availability. 
if we're going to live missionally, if we're going to be about God's purposes in this world, if we're going to give a faithful account at the end of our lives, we'll do so these three ways. This is our bottom line this week. We want to be willing, we want to be available, and we want to be sensitive. Willing. We want to be willing to obey what, what the Word of God calls us into. If the Word of God tells us to do something, we want to be willing to obey it. If the Lord puts something on our hearts, we want to be willing to obey. We want to be willing to get out of our comfort zones. And I go, I, I'm not comfortable with that. I've never done that before. I don't know. That's a great opportunity for the grace of God to be seen on you as you go into something that you're not comfortable with and you're trusting the Lord to grace you to do it. We want to be willing to be out of our comfort zones. We want to be willing to be rejected. Guess what? If you're going to share the gospel and if you're going to go out with the message of Jesus Christ in this world, get ready for rejection. But sometimes we're going to get yeses. And that's where we have to desensitize ourselves to that rejection going, you know what? I'm not living for the yes of men. I'm living for the yes of the Lord. And if so many people are telling me no, okay, I'm going to keep talking about it. I'm going to keep sharing it. I'm going to keep showing it and trust that the Lord at the right time is God, God. Paul said that some plant, some water, but God gives the increase that, man, even if this conversation is just me planting a seed, or maybe if I'm over here watering a seed that someone else planted, maybe there's going to be a conversation that I have that God grants the increase and someone comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We never know when that's going to be. So we might get plenty of no's along the way, but what about when we get that yes? There's a guy, I don't, I don't have time to get into a ton of this, but there's a guy named Jai Jang who wrote a book called Rejection Proof. Brilliant book uh, that he realized from some life experiences when he was a kid that he was being hindered in his life by a fear of rejection. So what he did was what he called rejection therapy. For 100 days, every single day, he went and did something seeking out rejection like going to McDonald's, eating a burger, and then asking for a burger refill. <laughs> They're going to tell you no, right? And so in doing things like that for 100 days, he trained himself to be less uh, sensitive to rejection so that when he wanted to do things that he was scared of being rejected for, he could go, I I've been getting rejected. I'm willing to go do this. If that's what we got to do to be willing to share the truth. But not only that, we've got the Holy Spirit giving us boldness. That's one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit in our life is having boldness. So be willing to obey. Be willing to get out of our comfort zone. Be willing to get rejected. Willing to lose relationships. That's a painful one. Are we willing to lose relationships for the purposes of God? Man, if I tell them about Jesus or if I offer to pray for them or if I tell them that I go to church, if I tell them that I don't do that thing that we used to do anymore because I'm trying to follow Jesus... Man, they're going to think that I'm weird. They're going to they're gonna call me a Bible thumper or a goody-goody or a holy roller. Okay? And I know losing relationships hurts. But I'm telling you, the more we live in light of that day, when we're mindful of the account that we're going to get, or that we're uh, mindful of the account that we will give for what we've done with what was given to us, we have to be willing to go, man, I love those people and I love those relationships but not more than I love Jesus. And I'm willing to give up things that I love for things that I love even more. We need to be willing to give up things that we love for things we love even more. So one, be willing. Two, be available. Available to share God's truth. I'm ready and available. Be available to serve one another. Other believers, be available to serve 
people who are not believers, knowing that we're showing God's love and that we might be sowing seeds there, being available to serve outsiders, quote unquote, being available to pray, being available to host and be hospitable with your home, letting people come in and see the love of God in your life, available to disciple other people through relationships, going, who has God put in my life that I can start investing into and dumping into the truth? So be willing, be available. Three, be sensitive. Sensitive to the word of God, going, what has the word of God called me to do? How has the word of God called me to live? I want to be sensitive to that and obey that, have that in my mind, in my memory. How can I, I want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God, where I'm in conversations, and if I feel like the Lord is putting it on my heart to say, hey, is there anything that I can pray for you about? Or, or in times where you've got relationships and you feel like the Lord might be leading you to step into a, 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 a eternal or biblical or Christ-centered conversation, being willing to put your neck out there and being sensitive to the Lord leading you to do that. Being sensitive to your own giftings and passions going, man, what has God made me good at? So I can be aware of that and use those things for his glory and for his purposes. Being sensitive to the needs of others being aware of what's going on in other people's lives. So that's an opportunity to, for me to show God's love and then maybe share God's truth. Being sensitive to the needs of the church. What are things that the church needs that I can participate in and be a healthy member of that body? Be willing, be available, be sensitive. If we're going to make a difference with our lives, if we're not gonna waste what God has given us by just burying it, if we're going to give a faithful account where we stand before the holy and righteous and just judge and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, it will be because we are living in light of eternity. We see a day approaching where we will give an account and we want to be sensitive to whatever the Lord may be leading us to do. We want to be available to be used by him we want to be willing to step out and actually do something with what God has given us to say yes to eternal things unto the glory of God.